Our scripture reading this morning is from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. If you'd like to read along in your pew Bible, that's on page 118 in the New Testament section. The apostles had gathered the disciples in the upper room. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, it is not for you to know the times or periods that the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Well, it is a great joy to be here. And I've got to begin by telling you what a warm welcome You've all given me and Linda and my family. I've never received such a warm welcome anywhere. I thank you for that. And I recognize that as a gift of God that I pray this church will continue to share with everyone who passes through these doors. Now, for those of you who have been wanting to ask, what is an executive pastor? I'm sorry, you're going to have to wait a little while because I'm still figuring it out. Now. I was a little bit worried about that at first because I've never been an executive pastor before until the search committee said, don't worry, Bruce, our senior pastor has never been a senior pastor before either. (laughs) I love it. It's an adventure. That's what faith is. It's an adventure. I am thrilled to be sitting out on this next chapter of the adventure with everyone in this room. I just love this church, that it's willing to take that kind of risk. It's such an exciting time. And here we are on the first Sunday of this new year. And it seemed to me such a a fitting moment to have this passage read that Randy just read for us about Acts chapter 1. Because the question that the disciples are asking is about time. And in the new year, we're coming into the new year with questions about time and questions about what the year will bring. And we're bringing hopes. We're bringing fears. Some of us are bringing pain into this new year. And this image of the disciples standing there, I love it for two reasons. One is it's just plain funny. I mean, picture it. Here are the disciples. They're standing there, staring up into into heaven. Their mouths slack-jawed, gaping open. And they've got that deer caught in the headlights look on their face, hands out to their sides. And the two angels walk up to them and say, what are you doing here? Staring up into heaven. It's just a comical image. 
Where's Jesus? And because of that, it's also more than that. It's a profound picture of the challenge to our faith. It's a profound picture of the life of faith. Because we know that Jesus loves us. We know that he came to save us. We, we even know that he meets us here at this table in the bread and the cup in a mysterious way. But we can't see him. It's as if he's vanished and left us standing here behind. And where is he when we really need him? Where is he when we're suffering? Because when we're suffering, we want the suffering to stop. And we want it to stop right now. It's a perfect example that the disciples have asked Jesus at his ascension. They know him to be the the Savior King of Israel, and they know that by faith. And so they've asked him a perfectly legitimate question. Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And what does he do? He ignores the question. He basically tells them, it's none of your business. God's timing is none of your business. And then he vanishes into thin air. Friends, that's a challenge to our faith. When we come to God with questions that he seems to ignore, he leaves us wondering where he is. I think I've asked this question when. Probably more than any other question I've asked in my life. And I know I started asking it at a very early age. You all know the four most common words ever spoken from an automobile. Are we there yet? <laughs> my daughter, Jillian, and I took a, a road trip just a couple years ago. She was 10 years old. On our bicycle, not on the car, but on a tandem bicycle, it was a 200-mile, two-day ride from Seattle to Vancouver, B.C., And to Jillian's credit, I have to tell you this about her. There were 700 people on this ride, and I guarantee you that pound for pound, she was the best stoker out there. (laughs) And you know what? The stoker, of course, is the person on the back seat. And the disadvantage of being the stoker is that the scenery isn't quite as fascinating as it is for the person on the front seat. So 100 miles a day can seem like kind of a long trip. And if you ever really want to find out how long a day is, I recommend you try this. So anyway, I think that the most valuable piece of equipment that we had on this ride was the little odometer on the front handlebar that I could measure. I could read off how many miles we had traveled. And because every time Jillian asked me, Daddy, how much longer? I was able to look down at the odometer and tell her exactly how many miles we had gone. And then based on our average speed, I was able to estimate our finish time. But I also have a confession to make. As often as she asked me, Daddy, are we there yet? I'm sure I checked that odometer twice as many times as she asked me. (laughs) Because I wanted to know, too. I can't help it. I want to know when. And I want to know what the plan is. And in my life, I want to know what God is doing. But the problem with life is that it doesn't come with an odometer. It doesn't even come with a map, let alone instructions. 
And when we ask God the question in the midst of suffering, God, how much longer? He just seems to ignore the question most of the time. He's silent. And that's the challenge of faith. It's the problem of unanswered prayer. And if we're going to decide to live our lives by faith, guess what? We're going to encounter the problem of unanswered prayer. If you've experienced unanswered prayer, you're in good company. The Bible is full of it. Just look at the Psalms. That's why I want to look at Psalm 13 this morning. And I'm going to read it to you from the New Jerusalem Bible, because this translation really captures the poetry of the original Hebrew language the best. Psalm 13. How long, Yahweh? How long, Lord? How long, Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you turn away your face from me? How long must I nurse rebellion in my soul, sorrow in my heart day and night? How long is the enemy to domineer over me? Look down, answer me, Yahweh, my God. Give light to my eyes or I shall fall into the sleep of death. Or my foe will boast. I have overpowered him. And my enemy have the joy of seeing me stumble. This is the cry of someone who is in pain. Or who is out of work. Or who is watching a loved one suffer. Or is caring for a loved one suffering senility. This is the cry of suffering. The psalmist cries out, how much longer must I endure this? When are you going to help, Lord? But I'm not sure we always want an answer to that. We might not like the answer that we get. What if the answer were no, not this time? What if the answer were, well, about five and a half years from next Tuesday? How's that? That doesn't really help me. I don't I don't want to hear that answer. I want help now. I want the suffering to end now. The real question isn't when, Lord, not when, but where? Where are you, Lord? Look down. Pay attention. I need help and I need it now. That's what the psalm is crying out in verse 3. And the real problem is God is silent. And the silence of God can be deafening. The silence of God can drown out hope. It can drown out all other sounds, all thought, all beauty, and leave us alone and alienated, abandoned in the universe. The silence of God can be deafening, like when a child dies. And we're left to grieve without an answer. This is exactly the challenge to faith that Rabbi Harold Kushner faced when his son died. And he wrote a book. Some of you may have read it. It's been a bestseller. When bad things happen to good people. He wrote a book about it. And that book has been so popular that it's just been reprinted in a special 20th anniversary edition 
It's never gone out of print. The reason is because it's asking a question that everybody asks. Why does God allow innocent people to suffer? Now, I know you can argue that none of us are innocent. We're all stained by human sin. But that answer doesn't cut it. That answer is totally unacceptable to anyone who's suffering, watching a loved one, a child suffer. Rabbi Kushner struggles with this question, just like the psalmist. Where are you, God? You see, Kushner knows that God is loving. So he comes to the conclusion that if God is all loving, he must not be all powerful. Because if he were all powerful, then he would have stopped this suffering, wouldn't he? Well, that's perfectly logical. There's only one problem. It's not biblical. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God is both all-loving and all-powerful. So trying to eliminate the paradox is just plain bad theology. It's not biblical to eliminate that paradox. In fact, that paradox is where we meet God. It's where we meet God in this psalm. Because the paradox itself is at the heart of our relationship with God. The problem of suffering brings the paradox right to the surface. It challenges our faith. And it makes me respect the Jewish faith all the more. It makes me wonder if my faith might somehow be less than the faith of the Psalms. The faith that the Psalms demand. The Psalms were written before Jesus came. And I don't know that I would have enough faith to keep on trusting God without knowing the Messiah. I don't know that I would have the kind of faith of an Elie Wiesel who survived the Holocaust and yet goes on hoping in God and goes on waiting for the Messiah. Wiesel received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1986. And in his acceptance speech, he describes his experience of the Holocaust in this way. As a journey through a universe where God betrayed by his creatures, covered his face in order not to see. Didn't we just hear this same cry in Psalm 13? How long will you hide your face from me? Written over 3,000 years ago? Wiesel goes on to say, how could we ever understand the question of questions? Where was God in all this? It seemed as impossible to conceive of Auschwitz with God as to conceive of Auschwitz without God. This double impossibility of faith forced Wiesel to change his mind about God, but he didn't give up hope. He didn't give up hoping for the Messiah. And every one of us has to deal with the question of questions. And every theologian has a lot to learn from Elie Wiesel. But the question remains, where are you, Lord, when we need you? It's the question of questions. And Psalm 13 tackles the question of questions head on. This psalm takes us down into the depths of the silence of God. And it takes us down there, and what we discover there is that we find the secret of faith. 
A moment ago, I stopped reading Psalm 13 at verse 4. I read, look down, answer me, Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes or I shall fall into the sleep of death. Or my foe will boast, I have overpowered him, and my enemy have the joy of seeing me stumble. Now, listen to the last verse. As for me, I trust in your faithful love, Yahweh. Let my heart delight in your saving help. Let me sing to Yahweh for his generosity to me. Let me sing to the name of Yahweh, the Most High. What has happened here? God hasn't spoken. The suffering of the prayer didn't end. Yet the prayer suddenly turns from all these questions about when to, I trust you, Yahweh, in your faithful love. I will sing praises to your name for your generosity that you have shown me. Friends, here we find the secret of faith. Trusting in God's faithful love. That's it. It's that simple. And it's also that difficult to do when we're suffering. But that's it. Because when we turn to God with trust in our hearts, He fills our hearts with joy every time. And He shows us how to live in the paradox of faith. The psalm teaches us how to live in the paradox of faith in two ways. One, by never giving up on God as the all-powerful God of the universe. He is. So we call on Him in that way. And two, by never giving up on His faithfulness and steadfast love. We have to hold those two things together when we're suffering. God is all-powerful and He is all-loving. And the place where we get to discover that and meet that truth is in the silence of unanswered prayer and in every moment of our lives. That's why I marvel at the faith of the Psalms, at the trust in God's steadfast love, because they were written before the time of Jesus. Yet the spirit of Jesus is certainly in them. The spirit of God's love sustains David and it sustains all the Psalms. But what would it be like to face the question of questions, God's silence, without Jesus? I don't know. Because the only place I can go when somebody asks me the question they ask Rabbi Kushner is to the cross. It's the only place I can go. It's the place where I know that my God and my Lord knows my suffering. And he still loves me. The shadow of the cross is the only place I can go. The shadow of the cross is the darkest place on earth. But it's also the only place that can shed light on the silence of unanswered prayer. And I need to go to the cross every day whether it's a big question or a little one, even in the little moments I need to go to the cross. I remember a time just a few years ago when I was feeling so sorry for myself. I, was, I felt so alone and so tired late at night that I didn't even have the energy to brush my little girl's teeth 
to put her to bed. And I, I just remember complaining to God, why is life so hard? And then that question just evaporated in a thin air. And God filled me with an overpowering joy, as if he had said to me, open your eyes. Can't you see the beautiful gift I have given you to minister to this daughter? And I was filled with such joy. In that moment, it brought tears to my eyes. God loved us not just that much to give us good gifts. He loved us enough to give us his very life. So that's where we find God. We're not going to find him in the philosophical explanations of suffering. And we don't usually find him in the questions that we ask either, because quite often they turn out to be the wrong questions. Instead, we find him in the silent moment when we choose to turn our hearts towards him. Every moment of our lives is an opportunity for faith. Every moment of our lives is an opportunity to turn our hearts towards Jesus. That's all he wants from us. That's all he asks. He's right there inside our hearts. Every time we turn our hearts towards Jesus, he meets us there, even in the silence of unanswered prayer. And he fills our heart with joy every time. The joy to sing praises to his name. The joy to endure the suffering. The joy that overflows in our hearts like a fountain. Because it comes from an unending source of love. The joy that makes our questions vanish into thin air. The joy that leaves us standing there in the radiant presence of his glory. That's all faith is. A simple turning toward God. A single step. An attitude adjustment. A tiny glance in his direction. That's all it takes for his radiance outshines every obstacle to joy. Will you please pray this prayer with me? Pray it silently in your hearts as I speak it for us. Dear God, you know the suffering I carry with me. You suffered too. Dear God, I want to know where you are. And in this moment, I'm willing to trust you enough to turn toward you, trusting in your love. Come and help me, Lord. Give me the joy of knowing your presence. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.